adoring all three and asking that they would give us delight to sing and praise their name and that they would be honored through us. Well, this morning we're continuing in Luke, and we are now in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. The whole section, verses 1 through 13, is Jesus' instructions on prayer. But today we're just going to focus on the first four verses that focus more on what to pray. And then next week we'll look more closely at motivation Jesus gives us to pray. But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus said to them, sorry, as John taught his disciples, and Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Lord, we come. So we sang in one of the songs, would you give your word power and success? Lord, we need you each moment, each second of our lives. Would you give us your power through your spirit? Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. It's your son's name we pray. Amen. So as we come this morning to Jesus' teachings on prayer, many of us realize that our guiltometer, our Christian guiltometer, is already hissing. The pressure valves are already at their peak point, and we're already wondering, how guilty will I feel by the end of this sermon? When I was in college, one of the Christian ministers said, if you ever want to make a Christian feel guilty, just ask them how their prayer life or their evangelism is going. Well, my intent this morning, I don't think Jesus' intent this morning is to make us feel guilty. But why is it that our prayer or lack of prayer can cause such guilt in our life? Why is it that prayer is so hard for us? We recommit ourselves and we're dedicated for a while, but then we invariably find ourselves having been praying and we go, what have I said for the last minute? And we realize our mind hasn't really been engaged and we've said a lot of pious phrases, but we weren't even really that mentally or emotionally engaged in what we're doing. You know, Satan in a masterful maneuver has distorted what should be one of the greatest privileges we have? You know, he has taken the privilege we have through Jesus Christ to come to the eternal God in prayer and instead made us feel guilty when we don't pray enough. And so it keeps us from Christ. And so at the outset, I'll at least confess, I'll let you confess for yourself, that I'm not very good at praying. And that is something I need to grow in. And yet, it's a joy, it's a delight that we get to do this. You know, the Father, when we come to Him in prayer, He doesn't go, well, it's been a while since you've been here. Where have you been? I guess you care. No, He's there as the Father and the prodigal Son walking with us. He doesn't ask for the list of reasons you haven't been around the block in a while. He's there eager to hear a request. And yet there's this tension because we know we shouldn't allow Satan to keep us from prayer and from God, and we shouldn't overly feel guilty over it, and yet prayer is a barometer of our spiritual health. Now, I don't necessarily mean, well, if you pray for 30 minutes, then you're really spiritual, anything like that, but 
the ultimate, the pinnacle of spiritual health is when you realize your poverty of spirit. When you realize your utter dependence of God and nothing reveals how much you really depend on God by how much you pray. And again, I'm not talking quantity of time. In just the moments of life, as you drive the kids to school, as you study for the next test, as you wonder how you're not going to blow up at your sibling, all of those moments, do you turn to yourself or you, do you turn to God in prayer, revealing how much you're really dependent on God? And so there's this tension because we know we need to pray and yet we struggle to pray. And you know, prayer is a battle because Every temptation, every source of temptation wants to keep us from it. Satan doesn't want us to pray. The world wants us to do anything else, and our flesh is not eager to pray. And yet this is an important thing we must focus on because it is a barometer of our spiritual health. And so this morning we're going to see from Jesus what we should be praying about. And yet as we come to this prayer, we realize right away the difficulty because probably most of us, could say the whole prayer by memory. And yet then if we're asked, well, what did that mean? Uh, uh, it's kind of like our cereal. You turn to the side and you read all the ingredients and you go, well, what are you eating? Uh, I don't really know what half of that stuff is. Which should maybe question what cereal you eat, but that's a whole other discussion that we won't dive into this morning. But nonetheless, we know this prayer and yet we don't know it. I was a math teacher for six years and my first year out, I was also able to coach JV girls basketball. And to my utter surprise, right before we got ready to play the first game, all the girls huddled up and said the Lord's Prayer. I mean, I just kind of sat in astonishment, thinking of all the girls who disrespected me multiple times, who I knew in no way wanted to serve the Lord, and yet, when it came time for basketball, got to say the Lord's Prayer. Now, do we know what we're saying, though? And my point here is not to say you shouldn't recite the prayer, or that I could discern their hearts spiritually, but rather to just... Realize up front, we know what Jesus is saying. We know the words, but do we know what they mean? So this morning, to learn and reflect on it, we're going to see three things. First, we get to address God as Father. And then, really, there's two divisions. First, after the address, Jesus calls us to pray for God's glory. We see that in the middle of verse 2 to verse 3. And then verse 4, he also tells us to pray for our good. But beginning in the first few verses, we get to address God as Father. So Jesus has come back sometime of prayer. He did this often. And when he comes back, one of the disciples says, well, teach us. You know, John's disciples taught them how to pray. Are you going to teach us how to pray? So Jesus says, well, let me teach you how to pray. Now, you may have noticed the disciples said, teach us how to pray. And as we go through the prayer, all the pronouns are plural. We, us. It's not I or me. Now, it's not bad that we pray individually, and we should. Yet, in our walk with Christ, we were never meant to live it alone. In our society, we've really lost, even our Christian society, the importance of the body, of the corporate gathering. Even you can go in some worship services, and you get the feel that the whole worship service is meant to give every individual their own worship experience. But we're not here to create an individual experience. We're here together to corporately worship God. You know, when someone up here prays, we're praying for the church. It's not just me praying and you all happen to listen. Listen in as well I do it. But here, Jesus gives them the first instruction, and that is they get to call God 
Father. Now, as we dive into that, some of you may have noticed, well, wait, wait, we just read earlier Matthew 6. Isn't it supposed to be our Father who is in heaven? Well, Luke here did not give the full prayer. He gave a summary, and that's fine. So here he just says, Father, and we see the whole thing as we look at the parallel with Matthew. Now, this was a new, a revolutionary way for the disciples to think about God. You know, in the Old Testament, you can find places where God was called Father. And yet, never in a personal prayer was God called Father. This was a radical, revolutionary thought for them. And yet today, this is still, and yet a different way, a radical thought. Actually, it's a little bit of an offensive thought. Now, some of you have been, well, what do you mean it's offensive? Well, isn't this just another one of those patriarchal, patriarchal underpinnings of our society that demeans women? Shouldn't we also say our mother who art in heaven? I mean, isn't this a little sexist that we refer to God as father? And some people, some even some translations will say our father, mother in heaven. Or some people say, well, we should pray also our mother in heaven. Well, what should we think of that? Well, first we should admit God is not a male or a female. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have any anatomy. And so God is not a male or God is not a female. As well, many times, up to 26 times, the Bible uses feminine imagery to describe God. For example, Isaiah 66, 13 says, God says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. God refers to a mother and says, I'm like that. I'm going to comfort you just like a mother. Yet, while that is true, never in the Bible is God given a feminine title, nor is he given pronouns that are feminine. Thus, God is never called queen. God is never called mother. He's never called she. Now, is this because males are better? Well, definitely not at all. God made male and female in his image. We are both equally God's image, and we complement one another, and as a group more fully represent God. And thus, and this is really the key point, God has chosen to reveal himself with masculine titles and pronouns. And this really gets to the crux of the issue. Is the Bible here, or in your lap or wherever it is, man's attempt to understand God, or is this God's revelation of himself, not trying to win the argument there, to us? You know, if this is just man's, or woman's, attempt to understand God, well, then go ahead and say, our mother who art in heaven. There's no reason I should listen to people who lived 2,000 years ago than I should listen today. But if this is God's revelation of himself to us, then I don't get to pick and choose how he wants me to refer to him. If he has spoken and said, call me our father, then in obedience I say, my father, our father, who art in heaven. As well, we need to realize this kind of goes both ways. You know, it's not just God who is referred to in masculine terms, also the devil. We don't say, resist the devil and she'll flee from you, though some of you may think that. No, there's nothing better about men. So it's not saying, well, look, the Bible uses masculine for the devil, so that means men are worse. No, it's just the way they spoke. And since God has revealed himself that way, we submit and joyfully call him as he has referred to himself as father. And so we should rejoice that God has given us this title, Father. But let's think about all the other titles he could have given us. Jesus could have said, all right, when you pray, say, Lord. Or when you pray, say, 
creator. Or when you pray, say, sovereign ruler of the universe. And all of those would have been legitimate things to say. And at times we should begin our prayers in those ways. And yet, Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Any parent, most parents, whose children are able to speak one day get to the point where they break the unwritten code and call their parents by their personal name. And then they sit there and giggle. I called my mom by their name. Ha, ha, ha. Well, and my children have done this to me and laughed. What I've often tried to express is, why would you want to call me that? Anybody in this world can call me Jeremy. Only four people get to call me dad. Why would you give up that amazing privilege to call me what anyone else can call me? You get a special relationship with me. No one else gets that. God has said you get to call me Father. And here we have to pause because there's this assumption, well, everyone gets to call God Father. That's not true. Now, it is true, Acts 17, 21, 9, that all people are God's offspring. So in a generic sense, you could say God's our Father. And yet, in another sense, in a spiritual sense, that is not true. You know, Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, they say, well, our father was Abraham. And Jesus says, no, your father was the devil. You know, John chapter 1, it says, to all who did receive the true light, that being Jesus, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. You know, the implication is that of that is that we're not born into God's family spiritually. We have to be born again. We have to be given new life. We have to be adopted into God's family. And then we have the privilege, not just to refer to him as God, but we now get to call him Father. You know, that's an amazing truth. God not only saves us, he adopts us. You know, God could have just saved us and restored a creator, creation, master, Lord relationship. And that would have been amazing if that's all he'd done. And yet he also said, not only will I save you from your sins, I will allow you to be my children with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities that come from being in my family. Thus, we can have confidence rather than fear when we come before God. We can have hope and trust in the midst of trials because our Father protects us. We can know that we're not alone. Our Father is always with us. And though our resources might dwindle, our Father has resources on a thousand hills. And so we get to rejoice because we have the privilege of calling God Father. And Jesus often when he prayed began his prayers this way. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My Father, three times. You knowing that God was his Father brought calm, trust, and hope. Yet there's one prayer in which Jesus did not refer to God as his Father. As he hung on the cross, he used the more generic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, because Jesus was forsaken, we are now able to be call God Father. So we have to ask ourselves, do we relate to God in cowering fear? Or do we relate to him as Father? knowing that Jesus was forsaken so that we might have that privilege. We are his beloved children in whom he is well pleased. And so Jesus begins with this precious privilege that we're given. And he's now going to turn 
to instruct us on what we should say when we pray. But before we do that, I think it's helpful to notice what Jesus did not start with. You know, there's a man here in All Red Prison Facility in Iowa Park. His name's David Graham. And when he was in prison, he became a Christian. And in the Texas prison system, you can earn your seminary degree through Southwestern Seminary. So he did that, and now he serves here or there in the All Red Prison Unit as a, well, a chaplain, but he is called a field minister. And I get the privilege about once a month I get to go talk to him. And this time, as I was waiting, right with all the chaplain's resources, was a Muslim's guide on how to pray. There's two pages, front and back, four pages total on how to pray. And on the last page, there's nine things you could do or fail to do which would make your prayers invalid. You have to wash your body this way. You have to have this posture. You have to do this. You need to say this every time. And yet Jesus, in contrast to all that, says, just say, Father. doesn't matter what position you have. It doesn't matter if your body has been washed. What you need to be cleaned is not your body, but your soul. And my Son has taken care of that for you. So just come to your Father in prayer. And so... We get joyfully to come to Him. And yet now Jesus gives us some requests that we should make. And we see first kind of the section of praying for God's glory. In the middle of verse 2 through verse 3, it says first, Hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. You know, for something to be holy, it's set apart. It's got a special purpose. So the next time your toilet overflows, you don't go running into your dad's closet. This didn't happen, by the way. And get out your dad's suit jacket and clean it up. That has a special purpose. That's not just for cleaning up overflowed, overflowing toilets. God's name has a special purpose. It just doesn't get thrown around for any reason. His name is unique, and yet we use it so flippantly. And we have a little bit of a hard time with this because we normally just use a name as an identifier. Oh, well, that's Bob's chair, or that's Susie over there. And we think of a name as just a title to go for someone. But in many other cultures, and definitely in the culture of the Bible, someone's name represents all they are. Someone's name could bring joy, could bring fear. And we still have glimpses of that. For example, if I say the name Donald Trump, immediately all kinds of emotions are brought up in people. Because the name doesn't just signify, identify him. It brings up his views and who he is and People either rejoice or ambivalent or get angry. And a name, it symbolizes more than just what a person is. Names can have power. And maybe you go somewhere and there's certain access that you can't get. But if you're with so-and-so, you have the power to go in there. Their name opens doors. Some people's names are feared. And so it's the one who shall not be named. That name is too horrible to even utter. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now that doesn't mean, well, you should want Bob instead of Tom. It means that who you are, who, how you are known to be, because a name matters. You know, here, this is basically the flip side of the third commandment. Third commandment is, Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So here, this is saying, No, positively, treat God's name as holy. Don't use it idly. Don't misuse it. And praying for God's name to be hallowed is both something we're praying for presently 
and something we're praying for in the future. Well, let's think presently. Now, obviously, we could say, when you get upset, don't use God's name in vain. And that means that, but there's more than that. You know, one way I think we often use God's name in vain, or we don't treat it as holy, is when we use his name to further our purposes. So you really want to do something, and you're excited about it, and you're trying to convince others, maybe Christians, about it, and so you say, well, I th- God wants me to do this. Well, maybe God does want you to do that, but often it seems as though people use God as a trump card so that they can have their agenda go forward. And we shouldn't use God's name to push our agendas. When we do, we're using God's name in vain. You know, the Bible definitely should guide and lead us into thinking about economics, politics, the judicial system, and all these things. But we need to also realize that God did not set up in Scripture that we should use a democratic or a republic or a monarchy. Could you argue from some passages why better or worse? Yes. But when we say God wants us to have fill in the blank, you're using God's name in vain for things that he has not clearly taught us. As well, we hollow God's name or we make his name holy when we lead lives that honor him. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So if you say, I'm a Christian, you have taken the name of Christ upon you. You have his name on you. And then we should live in a way that doesn't cause people to dishonor his name. They should look at our lives and go, wow, look at that example of Christ. That's wonderful. It doesn't disrepute, cause disrepute to his name. Similarly, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 1, he tells workers to submit and obey their bosses so that God's name is not blasphemed. So do people in your workplace praise or see God's name as wonderful because of your work ethic, because of your respect for the authorities, because of your attention to detail? You, know, you can take God's name in vain by never saying a word. Because we've put God's name upon ourselves when we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we take the name Christian. And all of this is making us reflect back and ask, do we really want our name to be hallowed? Our name to be known or God's? There's this interesting contrast in Genesis 11 and 12. Genesis, Genesis 11 is right after the flood in the Tower of Babel. And they gather and they say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And then God disperses them throughout the earth because God is jealous for his name's sake, that his name should be honored. But then in chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he honors his name. He says, I will honor your name as you honor me. And God has been jealous throughout scripture for his name. That's why, for example, the 23rd Psalm, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For that his name might be honored. You know, and yet, we see this amazing truth that when God is honored, his name is honored in our life, he then blesses us for it. You know, that's really the opposite of most of the people we interact with. Because for many people, it's a competition. Either my name's going to be praised or theirs. And if their name is praised, it's not mine. So I need to push myself forward and make sure they don't get ahead of me. And yet, as we push God forward, it doesn't push us back. It rebounds in Him honoring our name as well. 
And so we've said, this is a present request. If we're going to pray, God, hallowed be your name, that should reflect how we act in our workplace, how we act in our homes, how we speak about what we want. But it's also a future request because it's looking forward to the day when every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue confess that he's Lord. When his name is fully honored. Right now, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But there will be a day when, if we don't joyfully bow the knee now, we'll be forced to bow the knee. And so we should pray that people, people would joyfully bow their knees now. And that God's name would be hallowed in their life. Along with this, Jesus teaches in verse 3, sorry, verse 4, your kingdom come. And like the name of Jesus being hallowed, this is both future-oriented and a present reality. You know, as people come to trust Christ, submit to Him, His kingdom grows. However, God's kingdom will not fully come on this earth until Christ comes again. And so it's a prayer that He will restore His kingdom. You know, many kingdoms have come and gone. The Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Carthaginians, and we could keep listing them on and on. But there's only one kingdom that will last forever. And like God's name, we have to ask, what kingdom am I living for? What kingdom gives me hope? And many people, even many Christians, their hope is built up in whether the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is ascendant in power. If they get more votes, then we are happy. And yet one day, Republicans and Democrats will just be another fact of history that some student in some school will go, why do we have to learn this? Who are these Republicans? Who are these Democrats? Why does this matter? God's kingdom will eternally matter. His kingdom will go on forever and ever. And so let's pray and work that His kingdom will come. And so we begin by Jesus instructing us to pray for God's glory. Now, it's not wrong to pray for our needs, and we're going to see that next. And yet, this is a reminder, at least for me, how often my prayers can devolve into, God, would you bless the day? Would you bless my car ride? Would you bless the dog? Would you bless the flowers? Would you bless all these things that are going on in my life? And again, we're going to see in just a minute, we should pray for those things. It's not wrong. And yet, we need our hearts restored that our greatest hope our greatest joy would be God, caring for Him and wanting His name to be honored. And yet God cares for us. He's our Father. And so He also pray, tells us to pray for our good. Verse 3, we see, give us each day our daily bread. That's been interesting. Throughout time, pious individuals have said, well, bread here doesn't really mean like the stuff you eat. Bread has to have some kind of spiritual meaning because God isn't really that concerned about things like your daily bread. You know, Origen, who was a great church father, he wrote this, the bread for which we should ask is spiritual, the living bread that comes down from heaven. And so people have interpreted this, well, when we pray for our daily bread, we're praying for communion with God each day. Or we're praying that his word would be impactful in our life. Or that we would know the Son of God, the bread of life. And one of the challenges to this is, the word for daily is a word that's not used anywhere else in Greek literature except when this 
verse is quoted. And it wasn't until a century ago that we found another word, this word used in another place. And then when it was found, it was used in the sense of daily physical bread, the bread you eat. So, I don't know, is that surprising to you? That God would care about something as mundane as the food you eat? I would think intellectually if we went around and polled, well, what do you think? What do you think? Most of us say, well, no, that's not surprising. Because as Americans, we've kind of bought this idea that God's basically a divine butler. I want a little bit better car, I'll pray to God. I want a little bit better room service, I'll pray to God. God, could you make my pillow a little better? God's my divine butler. So intellectually, oh yeah, God, God cares about those things. We should pray for those mundane things. And yet deeper down, I wonder, do we really think that's care? That's true. We look around, does anyone really care? You know, in our panic, our anxiety over the future reveals that we don't really think that God cares enough to give us daily bread. That we don't really think that he is concerned for those mundane, trivial things. And yet they're not mundane and trivial to God because he calls us to pray for those. And we also struggle because if we're honest, or at least I'll be honest, I really want to pray for God for not just today's bread, but can I know where tomorrow's is going to be and like next year's, even like when I retire, I want to know where that bread's going to be too. Can you, would you give me like all the money for all my retirement now? Because that's what I want. Because trusting you for today is like really hard. I don't want to do that. And yet God wants us to pray for our daily bread, to realize that day by day I'm dependent not on my work ethic, I'm not dependent on my financial acuity and how well I could work the stock market or how smart I was to invest. Every day, I'm dependent on him. Now, that's hard for us Americans to swallow because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I earned this living. I earned this retirement. It's mine. And yet, everything we have is because God has given it to us. We depend on him. You may be familiar with Corrie Ten Boom. I've quoted from her quite often. She lived during World War II, and she was helping Jews who were trying to be arrested escape. And she was finally caught for doing this and sent into the concentration camps herself. And they allowed her sister to go with her. And her sister, Betsy, had very bad health, and she needed this certain medicine. They called it the Davitalman bottle. And Corrie writes... As they are in one of these prisons, she says, another strange thing was happening. The Divatuman bottle was continuing to produce drops. It scarcely seemed possible. So small a bottle, so many doses a day. Now, in addition to Betsy, a dozen others on our piers were taking it. My instinct was always to hoard it. Betsy was growing so very weak, but the others were ill as well. It was hard to say no to eyes that burned with fever, hands that shook with chill. I tried to save it for the very weakest, but even those soon numbered 15, 20, 25, and still, every time I tilted the little bottle, a drop appeared at the tip of the glass stopper. It just couldn't be. I held it up to the light, trying to see how much was left, but the dark brown glass was too thick to see through. And that true story vividly captures what Jesus is saying, because notice Jesus taught us to pray, give us. This day our daily bread. 
Now, well, Jesus has given me enough, so, well, I'm sorry, neighbors, you don't have enough, or I'm sorry, you don't. No, give us. Our prayer is our concern, not just that the mauling costs would have enough for today, but everyone in this church body, that we would all have our daily bread. You know, God cares for us in our families. That's very true. But He also calls us to pray and care for one another in this church body. Well, second, Jesus instructs us in verse 4. He instructs us to pray, forgive us our sins. Just like we need bread, we need forgiveness of sins. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, God declares, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is here dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your God is declaring that our sin has ruined our relationship with God. And so here, he's calling us to confess our sins because God wants to forgive us. He doesn't say, confess your sins, but God really doesn't want to do that anyways. It's just a nice thing to say. No, God desires, he wants you to come and confess your sins to him. Now, there's the initial confession we make when we come to trust Christ. And yet, there also needs to be a daily, or maybe moment by moment, confession of sins. You know, sin, once we trust in Christ, doesn't end our relationship with God. We're secure in Christ, but it does cause disharmony. If you've ever been to a symphony, and before they start, they're all tuning their instruments, and it's so discordant. You're thinking, is anything beautiful going to come from this group of players? But yet, when they're all in tune, it's beautiful. Or you may have heard a piano that's being played, and you're like, that note is not right. That does not go with the others. Well, confession is the great tuner of our relationship with God. When we sin, our relationship is out of tune. And when we confess our sins, we bring it back so there's harmony with us and God. And amazingly, God promises, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. And God delights to forgive us every time. Even for those sins you've committed again and again. So we should come regularly to God in prayer, confessing our sins. Not waiting till we've beat ourselves up so now I feel like, okay, well I've really let myself have it. Now I can pray again. Not trying to earn enough for God to love us but coming immediately and repenting and knowing that God delights to forgive. It's interesting, though, because Jesus says, for we also forgive our debtors. Luke is switching the words here because he talked about forgive us our sins, and now he talks about debtors. And that's because when someone wrongs us, they are in our debt. And we can either make them pay for what they did, or we can forgive them and take the debt upon ourselves. Forgiveness is always costly for the person who is offering forgiveness. And true forgiveness is always free for the person receiving it. And yet, though we've been forgiven, we really, yeah, we'd rather make them pay that debt because they wronged us. We want to let them have it. And yet then, Jesus calls us to remember the cost it was for God to forgive us. God didn't arbitrarily just look over sins and go, well, I'm not going to worry about those. That's no big deal. 
for God to forgive us, He had to send His one and only Son. And He had to pay the price. He had to take our debt on Him. And so rather than wanting to hold someone's offense against them, rather than bearing grudges, clinging on to all the mental things of what they've done, we should want to forgive as God has forgiven us. There's a choice. Every time that thought of what they did comes into your mind, to either hold it against them or to let it go. Because forgiveness is not a feeling. Sometimes people get this impression, well, I don't feel like I can forgive them. Well, forgiveness is not how you feel about them. It's a choice about how you're going to respond to them. Are you going to hold it against them, cause it to harm your relationship, use it against them in your relationship with others, tell others about it? Or are you going to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to not punish them. I will take it on myself. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. You know, if God forgave us the way we often say we forgive others, we would have very poor forgiveness. We have a list. When the next thing comes up, we got a whole long list of things we can bring up again. Well, what about when you did this and this and this and this and this? And you know, well, I thought we worked through that. Well, if you've forgiven them, destroy the list mentally. Now it may come back up because forgiveness isn't easy. And so each time you remember what they do, you say, Jesus, just as you've forgiven me, help me to not hold this against them, to not bear a grudge, to destroy that list that comes in my mind about what they've done. And yet there's such joy here. Joy because we realize God's complete forgiveness of us. And so we get to share that forgiveness to others. Well, third, Jesus teaches us to pray and lead us not into temptation. If your heart still has a beat, you still are being tempted. And yet if we truly want God to forgive us of our sins and we don't want to be put in those situations where we're tempted to sin in the first place. You know, we're weak. We're quick to stumble. And this request is making clear, God, I need your help to fight, to live a life that honors you. I don't know why, but sometimes have an odd, Christians have an odd view of fighting sin. They think, well, I'm going to put myself in really dangerous, tempting situations, but I'll just pray that God wouldn't, he won't let me give in. Well, part of the fight against sin is don't put yourself in those situations. Never put yourself in an area where you might be tempted in the first place. And yet we also realize sometimes we stumble into situations where I am now in a situation where I'm very tempted. And so this prayer causes us to pray, God, don't ever lead me into a place where I would be tempted to do something that would dishonor you, that would cause your name not to be holy in my life. Now we need to be clear that as James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, God does allow evil, and he does allow us to be tested. But not to try and get us, haha, but to refine us, so that in the battle against sin, we might be strong. So here we have looked at the first part of Jesus' instructions on how to pray. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor, writes, The power of religion and godliness lives thrives or dies as private prayer lives, thrives or dies. Godliness never rises to a higher pitch than when men keep close to God through prayer. 
And if that's true for individuals, it's also true of churches. You know, prayer is a joyful priority, a joyful opportunity for us. But more than having to pray, we get to pray. You imagine if you had a special opportunity, a genie's wish, you might say, and you could go and any person in the world would have to listen to what you say. And they would want to listen to what you say. You could pick the president. You could pick a foreign president. You could pick that person you like in your school and want them to listen to what you have to say. Whoever it is, that person will listen and care. That would be an amazing opportunity. And yet we have more than just some human who wants to listen to us. We have the creator of the universe who has existed for all eternity, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who holds each star in place, the one who needs nothing or no one, and yet he says, come to me. I'm your father. What a privilege that we get to go to that God in prayer. May we delight in talking to this amazing God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have made a way for us to come back to you. And may we delight, not just in church services or not just in morning quiet times or Wednesday night prayer meetings, but throughout the day to be talking with you, leaning on you, knowing that we are weak and you are strong. Lord, may we desire not just our lives to improve, but may we long for your kingdom to come, for your name to be hallowed. Lord, we do pray for our church that you would provide for us as you have so generously. Lord, may we not be led into temptation. And would you forgive us of our sins? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, you